There's an old story about a farmer who had a group of lazy sons. He lectured them and he lectured them, but they still continued to have no motivation and just kind of live for themselves. So one particular day, he decided to try something new. He gathered his sons together after a meal and told them that he had found an old document promising that there was buried treasure somewhere on their land. And the farmers wanted the boys to go find it and dig it up. Some, and of course, the sons were delighted to start the, uh, the work the next day. But by the end of the week, they had almost dug up the entirety of the, of the land that the farmer owned and had yet had found nothing. So there they sat, angry and tired. When the farmer came along to console them and said, well, you know, since the field is already dug up, you might as well spread a little bit of seed out there, sow some corn in it. <clears throat> well, the boys were too tired to fight about it, so they did so. And after a few weeks later and some timely rainstorms, the field was full of ripe corn. The farmer then told the sons that they would find the treasure once they had harvested the corn and gone and sold it. So the sons did so and came back to the father with the money. So they said, where can we find the treasure? He, they asked. The father looked at him and said, well, you already have. You're holding not only this year's harvest, but actually the key to prosperity for the rest of your life because you learned what work would do for you. I love those kind of stories where the experience ends up being the best teacher. It's kind of like Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid, you know, using the wax on, wax off technique uh, to sort of explain how it works for Daniel son. It actually even happened for me in times of discipline with my children. I remember having to sort of mete out justice and send people to time out for a while and seeing a child on the other side of the door utterly inconsolable. And you go in and you try to explain, you try to tell them why you did it, but eventually sometimes you just got to scoop them up and just hang on to them for a little while before it actually calms them down. It's funny how much quicker they recovered at that point. The point is this, so often in life the demonstration of wisdom is actually far better than the explanation of a technique. Because we've come to a place in our story where Jesus is on the cusp of doing something that at least he believed was the central event in all of human history. Something that we're going to talk about in great depth over the next few weeks here. The cross. But as he stands here on this, on this rather dreadful precipice looking at this uh, uh, unknown to come, what do we find him doing? Well, one thing he's not doing is delivering you know, a, a TED Talk on you know, redemption schemes in ancient Near Eastern worldview. Nor is he sitting down with his disciples and saying, okay, look, <clears throat> we're going to go over this one more time. Instead, what he's doing is he's just having dinner with his friends. <laughs> in our quest this year to sort of uncover the, the compelling nature of Jesus, we, you have to stand in awe at his ability to communicate enough mind-bending profoundness to keep theologians wrestling with what the Lord's Supper really means for, I don't know, 2,000 years or so, so far, but to do so in the dead calm of simplicity. Mind-stretching erudition meets this childlike accessibility in what Jesus does here. And the ceremonial meal that he leaves his followers ends up being this powerful centerpiece in a Christian's life. It's just like Jesus to say so much with something so simple. But don't miss what he's saying. He's saying, if you want to understand what I'm getting ready to do at the cross, you're going to need to sit down and eat this meal with me. And every time that you do so from here on out until I return and you bring your mission to a close, 
you're going to have this meal. And it's going to, as you know, the Apostle Paul would go on to explain in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, proclaim the Lord's death for generation after generation in ways that you can't even imagine right now. In other words, this meal is about explaining Jesus' cross. It is the singular central feature of Christian practice that would be the most effective thing to embody what Jesus was to come. So look, there's probably a number of ways in which we can unpack this, but I want to attempt to do it by getting you to zero in on three very important vocabulary words that come up in Jesus's talk here. I want to look at the word Passover. I want to look at the word covenant. And I want to get the word kingdom to try to see where Jesus is going with the Lord's Supper. First of all, look at this word Passover, because you've got to understand that the time in which Jesus chose to, to, to die at this time is on a very huge commemorative meal. Arguably, Passover was the biggest Jewish holiday of the year. But you may not remember its history. You know, 2,000 years ago, for 400 years, the Jewish people had been held captive in Egypt. But God raised up a leader named Moses who led them out. Well, the night before they exited, God told them to sit down and eat a special meal. And so for centuries, Jewish people remembered how God saved them from being oppressed and abused and tyrannized by sitting down and eating this meal. You know, I actually went to uh, a Jewish Seder many, many years ago when I was campus minister at the University of Memphis. The campus minister of the uh, Jewish Student Union, Scott Ostro, had invited me. And at the middle of the ceremony, he began to stand up and read a script. And we all had them, so we were supposed to respond to him. And at one point, the, the, he had the room ask the question, why is tonight different from all other nights? And we all had to answer, because on this night, we were freed from our slavery. And then he stood up and he, and he picked up the, the, the little matzah bread, and he said this, he said, this is the bread of our affliction. And all of a sudden, I suddenly realized that I was witnessing something very interesting here. <laughs> Because when Jesus picks up the cup of wine and the bread, he begins to say things that were not like the things that were being said in other Jewish households. Quite different as a matter of fact. Because when Jesus gets to the point in the ceremony where he would usually say, this is the bread of our affliction, he says this instead, this is my body. See what he's saying? He's saying the old sort of uh, meal that you had celebrated for all these two millennia, it was just a pointer. <laughs> it was a sign, what the theologians call a type. In other words, the freedom that was won for those ancient people, that was just economic and political. But I'm coming to do something that's going to make you free from evil itself. Death itself. I'm the ultimate Moses, Jesus is saying. I am the ultimate Exodus. Everything that's happened up until now, it's been about me. This is what I think is so interesting when Jesus begins talking about bread and he says, This is my body, but that used to be the bread of affliction. <clears throat> Jesus is saying, I am coming to resolve all of the broken plot lines of your story and the rest of the stories of other people who have the same problem. And that problem is affliction and suffering. You know, in my old age, I've become to have a very, a very unique <clears throat> definition of maturity. You have not gained maturity until you begin to realize that the world in which you live in is broken. 
And you are complicit in that brokenness. And therefore, until you've learned to deal with the fact, the inevitable fact of human pain and suffering, you haven't reached maturity. Evil committed in the world is a prison because it gets you into these questions of asking why. Why, God? Why did you allow this to happen to me? I can remember having conversations with, with young people who, who struck me as immature. And I would say oftentimes to them and to their parents, you know, it just seems to me like you need a storm. One of the storms that kind of comes blowing through your lives and sort of breaks down all the things that you think have simple answers. Affliction, suffering, it's a universal question. And the reason why you haven't reached maturity until you've had that storm is because you can't see how far-reaching what Jesus says here is. Everything you've known before, all of your suffering is only going to be resolved in me because it's pointing to me. And so Passover was this celebration of this release of God's people from an intense and powerful suffering which means that the Lord's Supper is a celebration that tells me what to do about my suffering. And that's meant to find its meaning only in His suffering. Jesus is the answer to my pain. Why? Well, that brings us to the second vocabulary word. That's the word Passover. I want you to notice, though, and zero in on the word covenant that Jesus mentions. You know, if Jesus is the answer, what's the question? Well, it comes up there in verse 20. Take a look at it. Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus starts talking about a new covenant that's going to be enacted when he spills his blood, when he dies. And again, these are, <laughs> these are strange things to say to the modern ear. How could it be possible that a death that occurred 2,000 years prior somehow is going to be instrumental in eradicating evil from me and the world today. I don't get it. (laughs) Well, you're not going to get it until you see what Jesus is talking about when he mentions this new covenant. And I heard one preacher say that there's, there's an ancient problem that people used to have with this, and then there's a modern problem that people have with this. Let's, let's deal with the ancient question first. If you go back to the book of Exodus, you're going to find that the real dramatic turning point in the story of the Exodus happens when Moses has finally finished with demanding repentance from Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And finally, after all of these refusals and, these, and 10 plagues and everything on, he decides now it's time to judge. It's now time to exact justice. He's ready to bring judgment. And so here's what God says. I'm going to send my angel of justice... And he's going to come down and put an end to Egyptian oppression. And the way he's going to do it is he's going to take the life of every firstborn in every family. What? (laughs) You're going to do what? Sounds bizarre, macabre even. But the oldest, you have to understand, the oldest child in any family in that particular society was such that they were almost literally the embodiment of the future security of the family. The oldest child was going to inherit all the money. Uh, He he held all of the security of their uh, future. And so if you have sinned and made a lifestyle of oppression for people around you, your life is forfeit from the God of the universe. And so therefore, your oldest son, since he was your very life in a real sense, was the one who was going to bear the judgment. So, but here's the problem. If that angel is going to come down, the angel of death, 
to, to sort of exact justice? If it's going to roll down, then everyone's going to have to answer for what they've done, said, and thought. Which means that God's own people, the Jews, are just as um, vulnerable to the cleansing of the Egyptians. And so God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb, and I want you to kill it, and I want you to eat it at a special meal, but I want you to take the blood, and I want you to smear it across the, across the doorposts. And when the angel of death comes to your home, he's going to pass over it instead of bringing punishment. Do you see what they had to see at that point? The only way that you are going to survive justice that both you and the Egyptians deserve is if you have a substitute. That's it. The lamb will pay the debt that you owe to justice and carve out a place where it's already been paid. Okay, now go back to the Lord's Supper because you got to notice something interesting. What's so unusual about this Passover is there's something missing. Everybody in the, in the Gospels mentions that there's bread. They mention that there's wine. But in none of the accounts do they mention that there's any meat. There's no lamb. Where's the lamb? The lamb is not on the table because the lamb is at the table, I heard one preacher say. Look, what's the point? Jesus raises this cup and says, there is a new covenant There's a new relationship that's being established here. There's a new intimacy that I'm forming. A new bond that's been forged in my blood. And that is going to become the defining reality between God and between his people. This is the new definition of the relationship. All right, youth group, college students, it's exactly what you're wrestling with in your dating lives. What is this thing between us? Well, when you have that question, when you're in college, you got to sit down and you got to define the relationship, right? When I was on campus, students would say, well, I think we're probably ready to have the DTR. Define the relationship. Everybody wrestles with this question of what is the nature of this fellowship? And Jesus is saying, I'm coming to fulfill the way in which God set up this relationship with a new covenant, That's what the covenant means. It's this bond. Those little lambs were just pointers. I'm the lamb. And so the ancient answer to the problem was to deal with uh, with the blood of creating a covenant, a new covenant. But let's face it. The modern question is still not satisfied. (laughs) For modern people, they're just like, look, I get all your stuff, but I don't understand why it is that God just can't forgive us. Is it really necessary to have all of this blood and all of this gore and Jesus going through this horrific experience? What is it with you religious people? Maybe you're just naturally violent. I don't know. That's what people say. That's how the world reacts to this. But what's interesting about this is the commentators will come and say that when people begin to push back about why there's got to be a blood sacrifice, it's because they really haven't thought about what forgiveness entails. Forgiveness, regardless of what context it appears in, is costly. Always. Think about what happens when someone offends you, when someone wrongs you. There's really only two things you can do. Option number one is you can hate them and punish them. Option number two is is that you can forgive them. Let's break those down. Let's say, first of all, you decide that you're going to let them have it. You know, you're going to show them just how deeply they've hurt you by giving them a little taste of your pain. I used to talk to campus ministers about this all the time. You know, pain is going to come out somewhere. 
It's hard to stifle that, you know? Lashing out at our spouse or our children or our friends is really actually trying to inflict pain on the other that I'm feeling. Isn't that what's happening? But what actually is happening when you do so, and every psychiatrist will tell you this, is that the evil is entering you when you do that. There's really no such thing as venting your wrath because the truth is in that moment, you're giving in to something. You're coming under its power. Oh, sure, you're inflicting plenty of pain, yes, but you're also inviting something into you. You're growing bitter and therefore alienated. And you do it long enough and you'll become cold and hardened. There's an agony of self-inflicted torment if we decide we're not going to forgive. Okay, so you say, well, let's decide I do. Let's say I do want to forgive somebody. What happens then? Well, have you really ever tried to forgive someone for something they've done against you? It's incredibly hard. There's nothing more difficult. If you tell me that forgiveness was easy for you in some circumstance, I'll look at you and say, you're either lying or you didn't really get hurt that badly. Forgiveness is hard. When you decide that you're not going to make another person pay for what they've done against you, which means you're not going to have any like little snide cutting remarks, no, no looks from across the room, no gossiping behind their back, even pressing down hateful thoughts towards them. Where you imagine, you ever had this where you, where you imagine those little conversations where you're telling them off inside your head? You decide you're going to have none of that. That is painful. Let's use a financial illustration. Let's say that I, bought, I let someone borrow my car and they wreck my car. And it costs $500 to fix the car. The car wrecking event created a debt in the universe of $500. Now look, if I let my friend pay back the truck, then he is out $500. But if I decide to forgive them for what they did, the debt of the truck doesn't magically disappear. Why? Because when I forgive him, I have to absorb that debt of the payment of the car. You see, to forgive the debt by pay is, it is, only means that you've got to pay for it yourself. This is the transactional language, though, of the covenant and why there has to be suffering there. This is the emotional fact of life. You cannot forgive someone without suffering yourself. Full stop. To absorb that debt into your own life and that pain, to say the evil stops here. That's the benefit of forgiveness, by the way. It doesn't get passed on when we learn forgiveness. But now you see the, gen- the genius of this meal that Jesus is establishing in the terms of this covenant. The commentary, N.T. Wright, says this, Now the judgment that had hung over Israel and Jerusalem, the judgment Jesus had spoken of so often, it was to be meted out. And Jesus would deliver his people by taking the force of it upon himself. His own death would enable his people to escape. Jesus, as he says in verse 28, has been going through a lifetime of trials and now the supreme one is upon him. He will go through it so that his followers need not. They must eat his body and drink his blood, finding their life through his death. But don't miss this larger point. Whether you decide to punish or whether you decide to forgive, there's going to be suffering. Remember this covenant because the currency of forgiveness at least in Jesus' life, this new contractual relationship is going to come in, 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 in nails and cross beams and sweat and blood and tears. 
So if you and I as fallible creatures can't forgive each other without going through suffering, then of course it's necessary for the God of the universe to do so uh, with suffering. Look, all the crimes against God have created a debt, and there's only two things God can do with it. If he hates us and destroys us, then evil wins. But if he forgives us, he's going to have to pay the debt himself. He's going to have to institute this new relationship, this new intimacy, or as it says in the text, in his blood. That brings me to the third uh, vocabulary word. The word Passover, the word covenant, finally the word kingdom. Jesus wants us to grasp in this meal, especially in verses 16 and 19. Take a look at those. Because Jesus keeps talking about how much he's been looking forward to this meal because it's the last time that he, will be, he, that he will until it's, quote, fulfilled in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying this meal is going to start the process of building a kingdom. Now, what does he mean by that? Jesus means he's building an alternative human society. A kingdom is a world order. It's a way of organizing yourself around a set of values and practices that are distinct. When your family decides how it's going to behave and what is and is not acceptable, it becomes a kingdom. When an entire nation does so, a society can take on kingdom-like aspects. But Jesus is saying that the meal that I'm instituting is going to lead you into a different way to do society. A different way. And you see it in the contrast in verse 25. Look what he says. He says, the kings of the Gentiles... They have a different society because they live with all these benefactors. Now, what in the world is a benefactor? Well, a benefactor is a nice little window into that Greco-Roman society because it shows us that they lived on the basis of a patronage system. What is that? Well, a benefactor in the ancient world had clients who, as long as they appreciated their lower position, stayed among their ilk, uh, would give them help and aid. Uh, in certain cases. But what's interesting about that society was the benefactor system would only be sort of taken up if it benefited the, uh, the benefactor. In other words, it was sort of a transactional experience. They, they owned your life in that regard, but there had to be some benefit to him of his helping you. <laughs> and Jesus says, that's how the world works, but that's not the way in which my followers are going to live. Jesus says, every time you take this meal, the exercise of kind of sorting through people and choosing only the folks that are going to advance you or make you look good, it's gone. Look at verse 26. (laughs) It's worth underlining. But not so with you. I want your love for people to be indiscriminate, Jesus says. I want you to love people not for your sake, but for their sake, whether or not there's a payoff. The church, the body of the church, is not about having warm relationships together. It's about carving out an alternative society where social status gets left at that door. It means nothing anymore. Power, recognition, status, they don't come, they don't mean anything anymore when you come to this table. That's where it stops. How does it do that? Well, I think the simply as I can state it, the Lord's Supper fills you up with a kind of love that ends up dissolving an insecure obsession with your appearance and your standing and your looks and your dignity or your coolness or whatever. Why? Because at the table, everybody's on the same level. Everybody comes to the same table. (laughs) Whether you are the pillar 
the community or whether you are the worst offender, it's all the same table. I think this is why Jesus sort of goes to his little cryptic explanation in verse 21 and 22, that there's some at the table to still have treachery in their hearts. And you might think, oh, he's talking about Judas. Yeah, and everyone else. Why else do they all look at each other being like, ooh, treachery? Is he talking about me? Every one of those disciples were capable of this. But see, at the Jesus' table, it's all level ground. And if the ground is not level, you don't have any context or ability to forgive. It's been almost 25 years since the Rwandan uh, genocide when hundreds of thousands of Rwandans turned on these ethnically separate neighbors in this horrific display of, of mass murder. But there was a young woman who came through it by the name of Immaculate Ilbagiza, who actually saw her own mother murdered by raiding Hutu hordes. But a generous neighbor hid her and some others in a closet for three months. Closet for three months. And while she was in prison there, she, she wrestled with these violent thoughts towards her oppressors, which you can imagine. But eventually, she came to forgive them. Well, how in the world did that happen? Well, she explained so in a book that she wrote called Left to Tell of how in the midst of her suffering and hearing the screams of those less fortunate than she outside, the piercing thought came into her head that we are all God's children. And she said, once that thought had kind of gotten lodged into my brain, I suddenly began in the slightest little tiny sliver of way to look at these Hutu oppressors as if they were God's children too. That we all come into... So that years later, she was able to forgive them. Look, it may be that one of the reasons why Rwanda has not descended into utter chaos, still got problems, but not utter chaos, is because there's people like Immaculee, they're establishing a new kingdom. There's a beachhead made for the kingdom where someone is learning forgiveness, something she was taught at the Lord's table. Look, I want to close with a comment from preacher uh, Kent Hughes, who drew my attention to the significance of Jesus' words in verse 15, um, when he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. Uh, Hugh says this, he says, Jesus would recoil at the reality of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's next week's sermon, by the way. Stay tuned. But not from this. This was Jesus' joy. He wanted to be with his friends over a simple meal that he knew would take on more and more significance after his death and his resurrection. And there really is something beautiful and motivational about the fact of Jesus loving to come to this table. (laughs) Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, But for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What was that joy? What was the joy that Jesus set before him that got him through the cross? You ready for this? It was you. You were his joy. So Thursday night, Tripp and I were talking about the movies that completely devastate us. It came right up here, Tripp. It's fantastic. The movies that like emotionally completely devastate you and just cry like a baby. Mine is, believe it or not, Hook. The Peter Pan story with Robin Williams. Bear with me for a moment. You know the story, Robin Williams, Peter Pan has forgotten who he is, but his children are kidnapped by Captain Hook. And while kidnapped, they begin to align themselves with the evil master. 
Well, Peter Pan goes and finally remembers who he is, and he becomes Peter Pan in all of his glory, and he goes down to rescue his kids. And while he's down there sort of swashbuckling and taking on pirates, at one moment he's talking over to his son, who's dressed just like Captain Hook. And he leans over, he's like, son, I tried forever to remember my happy thought, and I couldn't remember what it was, but finally it came to me. And he pops up into the air and goes flying right up in front of his son's face. And he says, it was you. And he floats away to keep fighting. And the son sort of looks up at him, and he grabs his costume, and he slowly pulls it off. (laughs) And I am done. (laughs) I'm almost done right now just talking about it. (laughs) Why? Because that's the moment. Let me ask you, is it too smarmy for you? Do you roll your eyes at this thought? That the joy that was set before Jesus that brought him to the cross was that you were his happy thought. You were that. And when we come to the table, (laughs) all on this exact same level, that's the thing. That's what creates this unity. That's what creates this healing that we talk about before every single service at this church. The healing that starts in our own hearts and that pushes out. Oh, there's a great invitation to come because Jesus says, this is my body and this is the blood of the new covenant. I wonder how much it would change us if we were there this morning. Let's pray. Then Lord Jesus, would you enact that in our midst as we sing this morning? Maybe, Father, as we sing, we could sing in a way that we didn't before, which was uh, from the eyes of faith, uh, of literally looking to you as, as our sacrifice, our only lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pray that we would sing with that joy this morning, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.